You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Dr. Daniel Palestrant may not be a name that you are familiar with yet. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Daniel Palestrant. Dr. Palestrant is founder and chief executive officer of Cambridge-based Sermo. As CEO, Daniel is responsible for the overall vision of the Sermo community and business. His main tasks focus on ensuring that Sermo is a valuable resource to physicians while building a profitable and socially responsible enterprise. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for having me, Dr. Lund. Well, first of all, it looks like we're both Blue Jays having graduated from Hopkins. Indeed. After Hopkins, you went on to Duke, and then you did a surgery residency, but then you did something different from most of us. What did you do? After graduating Hopkins, uh, I came up here to Boston to start a general surgery residency. And then uh, about two years ago, uh, I had some, I guess you might call it a little bit of good luck and a little bit of bad luck. The good luck was that I'd been noticing a phenomena, which ultimately turned into the idea behind Sermo, uh, and I had that sort of swirling in my head. And then the bad luck was the back pain that I'd been ignoring for the last couple months um, ultimately turned out to be a herniated uh, L4, L5, sort of brought my surgical residency to a, a rather sudden and unexpected end. So that's the bad luck. What was the good luck? The good luck was I'd been noticing this phenomena among my colleagues at the hospital where I was doing my residency where we would talk about various clinical trends or changes in treatments or pathogens. And then weeks or months later, I'd see it appear in the mainstream press. And I started asking myself more and more, is there a way where you could try and capture this sort of insight that takes place at the bedside and then try and turn it into a much broader scale, almost national phenomenon? And that was sort of the original idea behind Sermo. Wow. And so when did you begin doing this? I think the idea for Sermo started to come together sort of late in my second year of residency. And ultimately, the idea culminated right as the problem with my back became severe enough that I had to leave the residency. But Sermo is not your first company. Indeed, it's not. After two years of medical school, I took what I thought was going to be a summer internship. And ultimately, that summer internship turned into my first startup company called Azagus. What was Azagus? Well, the name Azagus came from a comment that several people had made describing the company, where they pointed out that what we seemed to be doing was unlike anything else that they'd ever seen. And I remembered from gross anatomy that there was a certain vein that was unequal or untwinned. And that's where uh, the name Azagus came from. In fact, it's azygos, literally meaning without twin. And that's why I decided to name the company Azagus. And what Azagus was doing was, uh, as you might recall, in 1998, it was sort of the early days of the e-health and the dot-com boom. And um, everybody was very interested in connecting physicians and hospitals. And what Azagus was trying to do was look at the actual piping that would be needed in order to bring connectivity into physician offices. So being an entrepreneur isn't a new thing for you? No, it's not. I think I can even blame this on a familial connection. Uh, my father while an uh, interventional radiologist also had done quite a bit of entrepreneurial stuff in sort of the device space and technology uh, innovation. So I think that I benefited tremendously from having a, a, an entrepreneurial role model in my father and also in some of my mentors down in the Duke medical system as well. Mm. Now, many of us think we have great business ideas, but have trouble, especially in the early implementation stage. How did you actually make yours happen? I think the way you say it is well put, Leslie. I think that there's never a shortage of physicians with great ideas. I think that there's the challenges, great ideas that ultimately 
are both practical and indeed can make money. And I think that that's a challenge that in particular physicians face. I'd learned from my first startup experience a couple key things. The first was trying to get physicians to adopt technology is a very difficult and usually long process. And I knew that if I ever did anything else, I wanted to be very careful as to just what I'd be asking physicians to adopt and how I'd be looking to change the physician behavior. The second thing I had learned from my first startup was I wanted to do something that was a positive force. In other words, I didn't want to do security or any sort of uh, risk mitigation where people felt that they had to buy it. I wanted to do something where physicians and people using it would be anxious to purchase it. And finally, I knew that if I started a, a company, it had to have what I thought was what I perceived as a special feature where the people using it made it better. And at the time of my first startup company, I'd become very intrigued by companies who had this unique feature where their users, by the act of using it, actually made it better, which in, in turn drew additional users in, which in turn drew even more users in. At the time, the best examples of that were eBay or an early email company called Hotmail. And so I knew that if I ever started another company, it had to have those features. I'm particularly interested in how you were able to get physicians to change their behavior, uh, because I agree. It's amazing to me how many physicians are technophobic and especially computer phobic. And your companies obviously require some degree of computer literacy. Yeah, I think your point is very well taken, Leslie, in that people all, all too often think that all that's necessary is to make something functional or that the features are what will make something sell. And at CERMA, what we've done very, very consistently is focusing on ease of use and on what are the motivations going to be. So on the ease of use, what that really comes down to is having talented designers and talented so-called interface architects who are able to look very carefully at how to simplify things and make them as clean and as easy to understand as possible. It turns out engineering things that are simple is much harder than engineering things that are complicated, at least from the user experience. On the question of motivations, that was actually something that was very much top of mind for me when we started CERMA. I was asking myself, what would motivate a physician to use this? And we divided it up into three categories. We thought that some physicians would use CERMO because of the benefit for patient care. We thought some, then the second category was, we thought that some physicians would use CERMO because of a financial incentive that we were considering including. And we also thought that some physicians would use the system for the so-called competitive component of it. And the reason why that's important is uh, in the CERMO community, because there's no editorialization or there's no one who modifies any of the data, What dictates the relevancy and the credibility of the data is the community. What happens is after an author or a member contributes a piece of information, the community is able to very quickly render an opinion on that, and that's reflected in the the member's rank, if you will. And rank turns out to be a tremendous motivator among physicians. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Daniel Palastrant. We are discussing how he became a medical entrepreneur and started CERMO. Uh, Daniel, why don't we back up? Maybe some of our physician listeners aren't familiar with CERMO. What exactly is it? CERMO means conversation in Latin, and what CERMO is is it's uh, an online physician community. Uh, In fact, now the largest online physician community with just under 50,000 physician members uh, and growing at about 1,000 to 2,000 physicians a week. And the way this community works is any licensed U.S. physician can register. Uh, the first time you come to join, 
you'll find we ask a series of questions that allow us to both authenticate that you are who you say you are, and then to verify that, in fact, you're a licensed U.S. physician. Once you're in the community, uh, physicians are able to share information and very, very quickly, in fact, instantaneously, get feedback from the thousands of physicians who log into CERMO uh, every day. And I'm here to say that it actually works. I, I was one of the early uh, joiners of CERMO, and, and my motivation was the first thing that you mentioned, that I had a clinical problem and question and decided to put it out there. And A, I was surprised that I really did have to be a physician. I didn't have, you know, some of these sites you can just say you're a doctor and they let you in, but CERMO uh, required proof. And so that was impressive to me. And so I posted a, a question to my peers about, it was actually, I think it was a hyponatremia I had in a patient that was on an antidepressant. And within just a few seconds, I had dozens of responses to my question. Indeed, that, that's the, the magic of what's happening on CERMO. I think, let me use that as an opportunity because this is a show on entrepreneurship. I always like to point out that good entrepreneurs, you can tell the difference between good entrepreneurs and great ones is that they recognize the role of luck. And this is where CERMO was just so exceptionally lucky. When we started, by that, what I mean is that when we started CERMO, we really thought that the community would be, first, would appeal initially to younger physicians, if for no other reason than it's usually younger physicians to adopt new technologies first. And yet soon after we launched, we realized that something quite unexpected was happening uh, physicians were logging in several times a day, and perhaps most uh, surprising, the heaviest users of CERMO were actually older physicians. In fact, today, our heaviest users, 45 and older, outnumber the 45 and younger physicians three to one. And this is where the, the luck comes into the story. The more we started researching this and doing focus groups and talking to the community to understand why something that was apparently unprecedented was happening on CERMO, we realized that it actually made a lot of sense. And by that, I mean medicine has been sort of on this accelerating trend towards outpatient medicine. And while physicians are trained around groupthink as medical students and as residents and even as fellows, we're always taught to question our own diagnoses, to talk to other physicians and share ideas. And for a long time, this took place in the doctor's lounge or on the golf course. But now sort of the doctor's lounge is a thing of the past. Nobody really golfs anymore. And as I said, there's been this acceleration towards outpatient medicine. So now often your patients in the hospital are taken care of by a hospitalist. You don't get the normal points of exchange of information that physicians once had. And so we made one of the most amazing revelations, I thought, was that physicians in practice are actually lonely. And what CERMO was doing was, was it's recreating this medium that physicians are so comfortable with and so willing and anxious to share information with one another. You know, it makes perfect sense. And, and I talk to a lot of physicians around the country in various formats. And, and one of the things that kind of surprises me is how many, especially solo docs and in small practices, physicians out there outpatient-wise, sometimes use drug reps kind of as that sounding ear. And clearly the drug reps aren't trained and really probably aren't interested in serving this role, but they're a, a nice, friendly, normal person that they have contact with every day. And it, they fill that gap where Sermo obviously makes a lot more sense. I think you're completely right. If, if nothing else, the drug rep is a non-patient, uh, non-employee that they can have a scientific discourse with. And that, that's both a very powerful opportunity for physicians to be educated about evolutions and treatment, but it's also in some ways dangerous if that's the 
predominant or, in fact, in some cases, exclusive way that physicians are getting clinical information. Exactly. Did you go to business school? I'm, I'm still curious as to how you figured out how to run such a successful company. Uh, the answer to that is the reason why I went to Duke was at the time they were one of the schools that had an MD-MBA program. So I was, in fact, accepted into a combined program. But uh, as I said, in 1998, my, my three-month summer internship had turned into a three-year leave of absence where I had started my first company, and at that point I was anxious to complete the Duke research year, my medical training, and start my residency, and so in fact never did do the MBA. So while I had the opportunity for an MBA, I never pursued it. We've been discussing how Dr. Daniel Palestrant started what has become known as CIRMO. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. So please visit us at reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Several of our shows each week also have links to, you guessed it, Sermo. Thank you for listening.